This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, Adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. This episode includes graphic depictions of death that some listeners may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under the age of 13. Shortly after noon, 79 CE, a thick column of ash, debris, and toxic fumes rose like a chimney from Mount Vesuvius. The peaceful mountain that had guarded Italy's Campania region for centuries had suddenly exploded, terrorizing the Roman citizens below. As Vesuvius continued to belch its contents into the atmosphere, chaos descended upon the streets of Pompeii. Everywhere, people were running and yelling. Children stood on the sidewalks, sobbing for their parents. Dogs howled in fright as they strained against their ropes. Tourists frantically tried to navigate the unfamiliar avenues, regretting that they had ever embarked on this holiday from hell. A desperate mix of confusion and terror showed on every face. They knew the gods were merciless, but they had never witnessed such a staggering display of power. Vesuvius itself looked like a portal to Tartarus. Thousands of years of cooped-up magma surged from the Earth's crust and spewed out of the volcano's mouth. It rocketed into the stratosphere at supersonic speed, reaching a height of nearly 20 miles. At the very top of this column, a dark canopy of ash and debris was unfurling. It swept south across the sky towards Pompeii. The blue sky turned black covering the land in darkness. In a matter of minutes, the city would be plunged into a nightmare from which it would never recover. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. 
Every Monday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second of two episodes on Mount Vesuvius, an ancient volcano that erupted in 79 CE, killing thousands and burying the Roman towns of Pompeii and Herculaneum for over a thousand years. In last week's episode, we discovered the volcano's origins and explored two thriving cities as they went about their last peaceful hours on that fateful day. We also met the historian Pliny the Younger and his military uncle, Pliny the Elder, who embarked on a daring rescue mission to the shores of Vesuvius. In today's episode, we'll follow the volcano as it devastates Pompeii and Herculaneum. We'll find out what became of Pliny the Elder and learn about the ongoing investigations into one of the most legendary explosions in history. It was early afternoon, but the sky over Italy's Campania region was pitch black. The Roman inhabitants below could hardly believe that a mere hour ago, they had been enjoying a beautiful morning full of sea breezes and sunshine. Shortly after noon, Mount Vesuvius erupted. It quickly transformed the lush countryside surrounding the Bay of Naples into a thundering hellscape. Thick blue lightning bolts ripped through the sky like daggers, caused by dense volcanic particles electrically charging the air through friction. Only the gods could inflict this much terror. In the city of Pompeii, parents desperately searched for their children. Street vendors abandoned their stands, which toppled in the chaos. Bakers deserted their posts, leaving round loaves of bread to char in the ovens. Bathers scurried out of bathhouses, and patrons stumbled out of brothels. They stared at the sky in bewilderment, unable to comprehend what they were seeing. Wet, purple footprints pooled on the floors of Pompeii's wineries as slaves splashed out of vats of grapes and ran into the streets. Tools were abandoned around the city's public forum, where repairs from an earthquake some 17 years before had been underway. Wealthy denizens took stock of money, jewelry, and other prized possessions as they loaded carts for escape. Other residents were debating whether it would be better to hole up in their houses. The entire town seemed to have gone mad. All anyone could think of was how they would survive. These anxieties were soon escalated by a new phenomenon from above. The dark cloud over Pompeii was releasing some of its deadly contents. As boiling volcanic rock rushed higher into the air, it cooled and hardened into porous chunks of white pumice. These light rocks began showering down onto Pompeii, along with volcanic ash and small rock particles called lapilli. 
The city's inhabitants looked around in terror as they pulled their clothes over their mouths to keep from choking and covered their heads for protection. It was a phenomenon unlike anything they had ever witnessed. With no recent history of eruptions, the Roman citizens weren't sure what else Vesuvius had in store. But the fierce sight of the volcano and the strange particles falling from the sky was frightening enough for many of them to leave. In the face of uncertain danger, most of Pompeii's 12,000 residents chose to flee. Although the sky looked ominous, they still had plenty of time to reach safety before the most deadly phase of the eruption began. The majority of Pompeians traveled south to other villages or escaped by boat on the Bay of Naples. However, some 2,000 residents chose to remain in the city, believing it was wiser to batten down the hatches. It was a decision that proved fatal. While the remaining citizens took shelter, ash and pumice continued to fall at a rate of six inches per hour. It wasn't long until the port was clogged. Any stragglers would be forced to attempt a different route or die on the beach, waiting for a rescue that never came. As the dark afternoon wore on, the debris inexorably accumulated. It piled in the streets, jamming doorways. Many who had sought shelter indoors were trapped inside their own homes. Those who were lucky enough to find a way out still had to wade through the falling rubble. And as afternoon turned to evening, far more sinister objects began to descend with the pumice. Chunks of volcanic rock had been ripped away from Vesuvius's inner walls and carried upwards with its blast. Now, they were plummeting at a rate of up to 120 miles per hour. They struck intermittently, like surprise missiles. They had the power to strike humans and animals dead and cause severe infrastructure damage. The people below would have been completely terrorized. Some may have even emerged from their hiding places and joined the masses fleeing south. Meanwhile, west of Vesuvius, the small resort town of Herculaneum watched in horror as the eruption continued. They were at the base of the volcano, giving them a chilling view of its debris column and the dark mass that hovered over Pompeii. Because Herculaneum was upwind from the volcano, only a sprinkle of pumice and ash reached the city during the eruption. Nonetheless, its inhabitants were in an uproar. The sight of what was happening over Pompeii was reason enough to get out of Dodge. Wealthy citizens and tourists loaded their slaves with valuables before hurrying down to their ships. Other residents found boats that could take them overseas or else fled north on foot. Out of Herculaneum's 5,000 residents, almost everyone escaped. However, at least 300 people stayed behind, seeking shelter in boathouses along the coast. Praying to Venus and Jupiter to save them from the wrath of Vulcan, god of fire. Some gave up hope in the gods altogether, believing they had reached the endless night spoken of in Roman mythology. Others prayed for death to put an end to this hellish nightmare. It wouldn't be long until Vulcan granted their wishes. All hope seemed lost. No one was foolish enough to travel towards this deadly situation, except for one brave Roman 
and his small fleet of ships. Across the Bay of Naples in Misenum, a military commander named Pliny the Elder had embarked on a fearless mission to the volcano's shores. His nephew and namesake, Pliny the Younger, described his uncle as heavy-set and asthmatic. Yet in spite of his physical disposition, Pliny the Elder was extremely energetic. Apart from his political career, he spent every spare second researching and writing on a wide variety of topics that interested him. At the time of Vesuvius's explosion, he had written 37 volumes on natural history alone. When Pliny the Elder first spotted Vesuvius's plume, he wasn't frightened. He was inspired. For the sake of his research, he had to get a closer look. He swiftly ordered a single ship to take him to the volcano. But before he departed, he received a letter from his friend, Rectina. She was stranded near Vesuvius with no way of escape. Immediately, Pliny the Elder commissioned a fleet of warships. He hoped to rescue Rectina and any others stranded along the dark beaches near Vesuvius. His 17-year-old nephew, Pliny the Younger, chose to stay behind. His letters, written later in life, are the only surviving accounts of Vesuvius that we have today. In them, he recorded what happened to Pliny the Elder during the ensuing hours, as told to him by his uncle's companions. Sails flapping, the convoy set out for the volcano's dark shores. As they went, they would likely have passed by other vessels, desperately fleeing in the opposite direction. Still, Pliny the Elder remained undaunted. He was fascinated by the natural phenomenon in front of him, and he hated to waste time. In typical fashion, he commanded the fleet while also dictating geological observations to one of his scribes. As they sailed under the cloud canopy, thick layers of ash began to coat the ships. Soon, pumice and charred rocks were pummeling the decks. The crew probably had to shovel this rubble into the ocean to keep the ships from being weighed down. By late afternoon or early evening, they neared the coast. A helmsman ran up to Pliny the Elder, fear in his eyes. The sea had suddenly become shallow, and the shoreline was blocked by volcanic debris. He begged his commander to turn back. Pliny the Elder realized that reaching his friend, Rectina, was impossible. He also understood the danger his ships were facing, but he refused to return home. This natural phenomenon was perfect for his research. He famously told the helmsman, Fortune favors the bold. Head towards Pompanianus. Pompanianus was Pliny the Elder's friend who lived in Stabiae, a town further south than Pompeii, and hopefully distant enough from Vesuvius's wrath. Perhaps they could wait out the evening there and reassess in the morning. With this new destination in sight and a strong wind at their backs, the fleet successfully navigated into Stabiae's port. Pompanianus himself greeted them at the docks. He was clearly panicked and had been busy loading his ships with belongings in preparation to leave. But Pliny the Elder was unfazed. He hugged Pompanianus and convinced him to return into town with him. He reassured everyone that they would be safe. To show just how relaxed he was, 
Pliny the Elder asked his host to escort him to the public baths, where he enjoyed a refreshing dip before reclining to eat dinner at Pomponianus' house. Meanwhile, flames had broken out in the landscape surrounding Mount Vesuvius. While Pliny the Elder devoured his delicacies, Pomponianus paced back and forth on his balcony, nervously pointing out the fires to his guest. Pliny the Elder reassured his friend that the blazes were burn piles left behind by field workers or unattended ovens that had caught fire. In spite of the natural disaster raging in front of them, he dismissed the flames as nothing more than a simple human error. Full of delicious food and exhausted from an afternoon at sea, he excused himself to go to bed. Before long, his snores filled the house. But Pomponianus anxiously sat guard through the night, unable to sleep. He was right to be afraid. The worst was about to begin. Up next, Vesuvius claims its victims. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Following an afternoon of darkness, night fell upon Mount Vesuvius. The volcano had been raging for nearly 12 hours. Its column of ash and debris continued to shoot into the sky while the cloud above spread further south over Pompeii. At this point, anyone left in the city was doomed. Many who had chosen to remain in their homes couldn't even leave if they wanted to. Nearly nine feet of pumice covered Pompeii, blocking any entrance to the outside. Now the pumice was posing a new threat. Each of these white porous stones was light, but collectively they weighed on the flat Roman roofs. Across the city, weaker ceilings began to collapse, crushing or trapping anyone below. And for those who were safe from these threats above, there were still other threats lurking below. Throughout the night, Seismic activity from the volcano rocked the Campania region. These earthquakes were enough to crumble weak buildings and cause significant damage to others. Those trapped at home in Pompeii would have been petrified by the creaking roofs and shaking walls around them. But being in the streets wasn't any safer. Anyone outside risked being hit by falling columns and edifices as they struggled through a sea of pumice. Not to mention, they could be struck dead by falling rock at any moment. Even the refugees who had successfully escaped Pompeii would have struggled to stay on their feet as the ground beneath them shook. Able-bodied family members desperately tried to hold on to their elderly relatives and children as they fought their way through the crowds swarming to safety. Above them, Vesuvius looked like a raging inferno as it continued belching ash and debris into the air. It was only a matter of time before these initial fireworks would give way to something far more sinister. 
On the other side of the volcano, the small town of Herculaneum looked completely deserted. And for many years, historians would believe that all of its citizens had escaped. But hidden in the boathouses beneath the town's steep cliffs, a small remnant of 300 citizens were hiding. Families huddled together while others lay curled up, praying for a boat to save them. Hour after hour of violent earthquakes passed, but the rescue never came. They desperately hoped to make it through until morning, but they were about to become Vesuvius's first victims. In the hours before dawn, Vesuvius entered its deadliest phase. The miles-high column of ash, rock, and searing hot gases fought against gravity to maintain its upward thrust. At last, it became too heavy, thundering back down to Earth. The deadly surges caused by the collapse of a volcanic column are known as pyroclastic flows. These dense swells from Vesuvius contained semi-molten rock, deadly boulders, suffocating ash, and boiling gases. As the column crumbled, Vesuvius's first pyroclastic flow sped down the northern slope of the mountain. It was heading straight for Herculaneum. Traveling more than 60 miles per hour, the surge ripped through the countryside, destroying anything in its path. It reached Herculaneum in a matter of minutes, bursting through doors and windows. Everything that wasn't covered with hot ash would have been incinerated by a temperature of at least 750 degrees Fahrenheit. For many years, archaeologists assumed that all of Herculaneum had escaped. But with the startling discovery of the boathouses in 1982, we now know the truth. The posture of their skeletons show people waiting for death, while death was already upon them. As the pyroclastic flow approached, extreme thermal shock ended lives in an instant. Skin vaporized from their bodies as their muscles contracted in the heat. Teeth shattered, Brains boiled and then exploded, leaving ruptures in their skulls. It was a gruesome way to die, but in a way, Vesuvius had been merciful. Death was so quick, the victims could have hardly comprehended the feeling. This first pyroclastic flow partially buried Herculaneum under 10 feet of ash, but Vesuvius wasn't finished with the city yet. In the next couple of hours, a second, even hotter surge charged down the mountain towards Herculaneum. By the end of the day, all of Herculaneum would be sealed under more than 60 feet of volcanic ash. It was as if the city had never existed. Meanwhile, to the south of Vesuvius, the situation in Pompeii was worsening. As roofs continued to crumple under the weight of volcanic debris, families sought shelter under any solid structure they could find. Stragglers in the roads desperately tried to wade through layers of pumice while clinging to pouches of money and jewelry. Anyone who had made it outside of the city walls and into the fields prayed they would reach safety in time. But Vesuvius's patience had run out. It was shortly after sunrise, but the city was still black as night. 
Vesuvius blazed above Pompeii in all its fury. Then, a dark cloud rolled down the mountain. But unlike the first two pyroclastic flows, this wasn't headed towards Herculaneum. This third flow raced straight south towards Pompeii. The debris stopped just short of the city walls, sparing the citizens inside for a little while longer. But death was still close at hand. Vesuvius had three more of these deadly waves in store. The fourth pyroclastic flow rushed towards Pompeii at a speed of 100 miles per hour. It reached the city within minutes, blasting over its walls and coursing through the streets. A couple and their two young daughters were struggling through the pumice when the debris, ash, and gas overtook them. In his final moments, the father pulled his cloak over his head as the searing cloud consumed him. Another family hid under a staircase as their young child reached up to his parents, a pose that would remain frozen in time. A group of slaves fought to reach the second floor of their building as pumice crept around their shoulders. A couple curled up on a bed together. A chained-up dog writhed on its back. A young man in the streets covered his face with his hands. Each of these people murdered by Vesuvius's lethal surge. Until recently, it was believed that all of Pompeii's victims suffocated on ash and gases. They would have felt their eyes and throats burning from a mixture of ash and toxic gases in the air before choking to death on the thick cement that formed in their lungs. But recently, experts deduced that this flow carried temperatures in excess of 570 degrees Fahrenheit. This would be enough to char wood and melt silverware, let alone kill a person. If this is true, no one could have possibly escaped such intense heat. Like those in Herculaneum, many of the victims in Pompeii would have died from thermal shock as their muscles spasmed. Simultaneously, Vesuvius's cloud of ash instantly sealed Pompeii's victims into a powdery grave. As centuries passed, this ash would calcify around their bodies as their flesh decayed. Plaster poured into these voids has since revealed the bowed heads and screaming mouths of Pompeii's victims. Their death was instant, their agony eternal. And yet Vesuvius wasn't finished with Pompeii. As fires raged across the ashen landscape, a fifth and sixth flow rolled over the city in quick succession. These extended even farther south than before. Like those in town, any survivors in Pompeii's surrounding countryside would have instantly been killed by the heat and thick debris. While the rest of Campania was living their worst nightmare, or already dead, a Roman military commander named Pliny the Elder slept soundly. He had spent the night at his friend Pomponianus's home in Stabiae, located just south of Pompeii, possibly intending to go north again in the morning to rescue his friend Rectina. Throughout the night, massive earthquakes shook Pomponianus's house. The bedroom Pliny slept in was slowly filling with layers of ash and pumice from the adjacent courtyard. Still, his labored snores continued. 
Meanwhile, Pomponianus and the rest of his companions sat awake, staring at Vesuvius as it blazed into the night. As dawn approached, they moved outdoors, terrified that the house would collapse from the violent earthquakes. Pomponianus had been a gracious host ever since Pliny the Elder had arrived, serving him dinner and giving him the guest bedroom. But his anxiety eventually reached its limit, and he sent a slave inside to wake up his guest. When Pliny the Elder wandered out, he was met by his friends' expectant faces. Everyone wanted to know what they should do next. By now, the sun had risen, but the cloud canopy that spread over Pompeii had reached Stabii, shrouding it in an endless night. They decided that if the sea was sailable, everyone would board their ships and leave immediately. They lit torches and tied pillows around their heads to protect them from falling debris as they made their way to the shore. But as they neared the Bay of Naples, it was clear that sailing was out of the question. The waves were too violent to even consider setting foot on their ships. The group turned to their fearless leader for guidance, but Pliny the Elder couldn't help them. By now, he was wheezing from the recent exercise and probably a fit of asthma. His men spread out a sheet for him to rest on. He plopped down and demanded a cup of cold water, then another and another. As he drank his last gulp, flames and a strong smell of sulfur rolled across the city behind them. It was likely the sixth and final surge from Vesuvius. The sight was too much for Pomponianus and everyone else on the shore. While Pliny the Elder tried to regain his strength, his companions turned and ran for shelter. Determined to follow them, Pliny the Elder ordered two of his slaves to help him up. He struggled to his feet, gasped for air, and collapsed. He died instantly from an asthmatic attack brought on either by the heavy ash, toxic gases, or both. It would be another day before his surviving companions discovered Pliny the Elder's body. He looked completely undisturbed and uninjured, as if he was sleeping. His dramatic rescue mission had saved no one. Even a Roman commander was no match for the forces of nature. Vesuvius had simply snuffed him out. When we return, the full extent of Vesuvius's destruction is revealed. Now back to the story. Mount Vesuvius raged for nearly 24 hours during its famous eruption in 79 CE. While Pompeii and Herculaneum are arguably the most famous victims of Mount Vesuvius, two lesser-known towns were destroyed as well. The town of Aplantis, between Pompeii and Herculaneum, was ruined as was the southern town of Stabii, where Pliny the Elder died from an asthmatic attack likely brought on by volcanic ash and fumes. This is not to mention the densely populated countryside surrounding the volcano, home of six to 18,000 people. Those who remained in the region had little chance of survival unless they were on the very fringes of the volcano's six deadly pyroclastic flows. Even the northern metropolis of Naples was terrorized, and so was the town of Misenum, where Pliny the Elder's nephew, Pliny the Younger, lived. 
Although the deadly volcanic surges didn't extend this far, the earthquakes, fires, and immense ash were enough to drive hordes of people from their homes. Pliny the Younger also recalled seeing the sea dragged back with marine creatures stranded on dry land. This is indicative of a tsunami caused by seismic activity. Experts believe that a small tsunami probably did occur at some point during the explosion, although we don't know the exact details. By the time Vesuvius sputtered to an end, the towering mountain had been reduced to a crater. Experts believe that the eruption released a total of 100,000 times the thermal energy of the atomic bombs that obliterated Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. All the ash made the surrounding Campania region look like it had seen a snowstorm. Millions of tons of volcanic debris had settled on the city of Pompeii. Word of Vesuvius's eruption quickly reached Rome, where Emperor Titus had been in power for less than six months. He rushed to Campania, hoping to organize a relief effort for the debilitated cities. The landscape that greeted the recently crowned emperor was shocking. Both Pompeii and Herculaneum were completely gone, buried deep under yards of ash. There was no one to rescue, no town to rebuild. But those who had escaped in time still needed help. Titus decreed that the remaining estates of Vesuvius's victims should go to help the refugee communities that popped up in Naples, Nola, Sorrento, and Capua. However, not everyone was as sympathetic as Titus. Tomb raiders burrowed into Pompeii's ruins, plundering whatever homes they could reach. One grand house in Pompeii had words scratched into its doorpost. They clearly translated to house already tunneled, a message from one thief to another. Other plunderers were likely refugees, simply trying to locate whatever possessions they had left behind. These were dangerous missions. Getting into the buried buildings would have required tunneling through layers of ash into already delicate ruins. Many of these burrowing efforts ended in failure. Not all the skeletons found at Pompeii were victims of Vesuvius. Unlike Pompeii, Herculaneum remained completely untouched. It had been buried beneath more than 60 feet of ash and subsequent lava flows, which hardened into stone. It was a barrier no one could breach. Because of this, the remaining architecture, art, and household items were safe from invaders. The city would remain untouched for over a thousand years. Meanwhile, the survivors of Herculaneum and Pompeii would make new lives for themselves, doing their best to forget the horrors of that day in 79 CE. The Roman poet Statius wrote, when this wasteland regains its green, will men believe that cities and peoples lie beneath? The answer to his question seemed to be no. Vesuvius had changed the route of the Sarno River, as well as the shoreline along the Bay of Naples. New maps erased both cities completely. It was like Pompeii and Herculaneum had never existed. As the centuries passed, Vesuvius drew back farmers with its fertile volcanic soil, perfect for vineyards and olive orchards. The volcano remained central to Campania's landscape, 
But the events of 79 CE faded through the late Roman era and into the Middle Ages. But Pompeii and Herculaneum wouldn't remain forgotten forever. In 1594, Italian architect Domenico Fontana was overseeing a tunnel that was being dug along the Sarno River when some of his workmen uncovered ancient Roman frescoes. Although Fontana and his crew didn't realize it, these were remains from the lost city of Pompeii. Another century would pass before any further excavations took place. In 1709, a farmer drilling a well over what used to be Herculaneum struck against a set of statues. Hearing of this discovery, an Austrian general named Count Elbuff hired local workers to continue digging out more of what turned out to be Herculaneum's amphitheater. By 1738, King Charles III of Spain sent orders from his palace in Naples commanding the excavations of Herculaneum and Pompeii. Hundreds of sculptures, paintings, and other ancient treasures were unearthed and carted away. Many of the best findings went to the royal family in Naples, while countless others were lost or destroyed in the careless excavations. King Charles also instituted a secret museum in Naples to hide away the shocking erotic art and sculptures uncovered from the Roman period. The statues, like the Roman god Pan copulating with a female goat, would have astonished Europe's prim society. And yet, those who knew of the museum's existence traveled from far and wide to gape at these titillating artifacts. Another discovery made during this time was the opulent Villa of the Papyri in Herculaneum. It is named after its vast library of charred papyrus scrolls. Archaeologists can hardly bear to imagine how many scrolls may have been destroyed in the initial excavations. To this day, the villa is known as one of ancient Rome's most lavish homes, and the multi-billionaire J. Paul Getty even built a museum in Los Angeles, California modeled after this extravagant Roman house. The thought of these early excavations are enough to make a modern historian cringe. Archaeology itself was not a recognized practice, and digging into ancient ruins was something of a free-for-all treasure hunt. It was not until 1750 when the Swiss engineer Karl Jakob Weber was brought in to lead the explorations at Herculaneum that more careful methods emerged. Nonetheless, people flocked to the excavation sites, hoping to grab a bit of the forgotten city. Soon, the nearby city of Naples ranked second only to Rome in the Grand Tour, a European sightseeing route traveled by young aristocrats. The exhumation of Pompeii and Herculaneum also piqued the interest of collectors and historians such as Johann Winkelmann, who first introduced the idea of art history in 1764. Scholars such as Winkelmann collected, studied, and published reports on the objects being uncovered at Herculaneum and Pompeii, further adding to their popularity. Without a doubt, 18th century Europe's fascination with Greco-Roman art and architecture was greatly inspired by the excavations of these buried cities. 
As the century drew to a close, the science of archaeology and studying history through excavations was beginning to take its first form, largely due to the ongoing efforts at Pompeii and Herculaneum. These endeavors would continue through into the 1800s when Napoleon's sister, Queen Caroline Bonaparte of Naples, took a personal interest in the archaeology of the region. Then, in 1863, Italian archaeologist Giuseppe Fiorelli was named superintendent of Pompeii. Fiorelli was responsible for inventing a casting technique that gave meaning to the calcified voids left by deteriorating bodies. By filling these spaces with plaster, he revealed the iconic death throes of Vesuvius's victims. Families huddled together, the dog thrashing on its back, a man screaming in torment, all of them retrieved from nearly 2,000 years before as though it had only been yesterday. As of today, one-third of Pompeii still lies underground, and nearly 80% of Herculaneum remains covered. These excavations continue to excite archaeologists as they piece together more and more information about ancient Rome. Though we no longer have the real bodies of Pompeii's victims, their agony is still palpable in their plaster casts. A child laying face down, a man struggling to his feet. These forms remind us of the terrorizing forces of nature, as do the skeletons discovered in Herculaneum's boathouses in 1982. Couples curled together in fright, a baby inside its mother's womb, all of them desperately hoping to evade Mount Vesuvius's grasp before it reduced them to bones in a split second. In spite of our progress to predict Mother Nature's calamities, her timing remains unforeseeable. Mount Vesuvius will almost certainly explode again, and the best we can do is form an escape plan. In spite of nearly 2,000 years of human progress, we remain just as powerless in the path of nature as the ancient Romans. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Allie Wicker, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. <laughs>